Welcome to the Acme Conversations podcast, where we explore the world of the moving image and its connections to politics, society, culture, and art. This is a recording of a live event, and it may reference visual material. You can view this on our YouTube channel. Good evening, everybody. My name's Sophie Lieberman, and I am the Director of Public Education and Industry Programs here at ACME. As we begin this evening, I'd like to acknowledge that we meet on the land of the Wiradjuri people of the Kulin Nation and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Um, Welcome to tonight's ACME conversation, mainstreaming disability and the appearance of diversity on screen. We recognise, in part because we've had incredible feedback so far, that this is a very large topic. We will have a diverse and robust conversation this evening, I can promise you. We will not cover everything, but we have a commitment to continuing to do these sorts of conversations and we look forward to hearing more from you about things that we want to discuss more or cover more of in the future. So tonight is part of our ACME conversation series. Next week is our final session before we return in September. Um, and we'll be looking at empathy machines and interrogating the ethics, assumptions, and privileges associated with technological storytelling. A little bit of housekeeping this evening. We will run for 90 minutes, approximately 60 minutes of panel conversation, and then 30 minutes of Q&A. We're moderating the questions this evening. Some of you will note there are some clipboards hanging around. Where's Anna's in the corner? There's a clipboard with some green paper. If you could write your questions on that, and Anna will be circulating um, to pick those up. Um, we ask you, if you need any assistance with your um, questions, please just ask Anna or one of the staff. And we also ask that they are succinct and a question. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so this evening, I have the very great pleasure of um, welcoming our chair for this evening, who will then take over, Carly Finlay, who also co-produced the event. And thank you so much, Carly, for your work on this. We really appreciate it. Carly, as you no doubt know, is an award-winning writer, speaker, and appearance activist. She writes on disability and appearance, diversity and diversity issues for publications, including the ABC, Daily Life, and SBS. She was named one of Australia's most influential women in 2014, the Australian Financial Review and Westpac 100 Women of Influence Awards. And I'd have to say that I think that continues to this day. It doesn't expire in 2014. <laughs> Um, Carly has appeared on ABC's You Can't Ask That and also Cyber Hate with Tara Moss. She's been a regular on various ABC radio programs and she's currently writing her first book, a memoir which will be published early next year. Carly, thank you so much. Over to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for all coming. Um, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of our land as well, and also acknowledge the disability activists that have paved the way for us to be here today. Um, so I have Kate Hood, Michelle Hello. Law, and Alistair Bobwin with me. Um, they're not gonna do, I'm not gonna do a bio because they're gonna talk about their work. So we've got a lot to cover tonight. Hopefully we get through it all. So, um, there was a report run by Screen Australia um, in 2016. It was called the Seeing Ourselves Report and 4% of characters on Australian TV had a disability, yet 18% 
of Australians have a disability. So there's a real disparity in how that is um, represented or how we are represented. And also um, tonight we're going to talk a little bit about how we are all changing that in um, disability and appearance diversity representation. So let's get started. So a quote from Kate, we will change our industry, we will tell our stories which have not been heard before. Thank you, Kate. Um, one thing that I really noticed about the change on our screens, particularly this year, was when I walked through the airport um, in January and I saw Dylan Alcott, the um, tennis player, basketballer, ABC, um, radio host everywhere, like on every screen as I walked through the airport and it was so big, um, so prominent. And in his interview after he um, won at the tennis, I'm really sorry Dylan, I didn't watch it, I'm not sure how to talk about what you won because I don't watch <laughs> sport, um, but he, he said this great thing, he said, I used to say to my parents, why do I never see anyone like me on TV? When I was growing up and getting bullied, I didn't know anyone with a disability, I didn't know in a, anyone in a wheelchair. I never saw anyone in a wheelchair, it sucked. But then, he was everywhere. And we did an interview together recently and he was saying that when he walked through the airport, he saw himself, I think, 13 times between, <laughs> between um, security and when, when he boarded the plane. So he was everywhere on the screen. And he was also, um, incidentally, in his wheelchair. So his disability was a part of him, but it wasn't the only thing he was doing. So. With that quote, I really want to talk to you all about, so there's two questions, about how you saw disability when you were growing up and appearance diversity when you were growing up and also how you were changing it now. Should I start? Yeah. Um, well, I was um, non-disabled until I was... Um, in my 40s, so until about 10 years ago when I became a wheelchair user. And so I have the experience of being a non-disabled person and being a jobbing actor in the industry and having worked on television and film and across theatre and musical theatre and so on. And I've got to confess that I did not think about it. It just was not a part of my world. And particularly because of the industry that I'm a part of, I was encouraged not to think about it. I mean, you know, we shame ourselves endlessly, particularly women in our business. We shame our, our bodies and our noses and our bums and, you know, we, do it, we really do a job on ourselves and other people do a job on us as well. So really it was only when I became a wheelchair user myself that I gained an understanding of ableism and what that is. And um, yeah, I'm still dealing with it now. I still think that I am ableist. I think everybody's ableist because we're all encouraged to be ableist. I think every person with a disability is encouraged to be ableist by a world which doesn't accommodate us. And I think that really has to change. And I think that our screens are a bloody good place to change that. 
because people really watch television and television's very powerful. That's my answer. Thank you. Um, I think for me, representation um, of any minority has always been important to me. And that uh, was really, it was a huge thing for me growing up because I'm Asian Australian and I grew up on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland where it's quite monocultural. Um, So I was always sort of quite aware of not feeling represented in that sense culturally. Um, and then that sort of shifted when I got alopecia, when I, I, I always had it. Um, and for those of you who aren't familiar with alopecia, it's an autoimmune condition that causes hair loss. Um, and I, I had it as a baby and I, I think it, it disappeared. And then it sort of reemerged again once I started my first year of high school, which is the perfect time. <laughs> Um, And I remember going to the dermatologist and he hadn't really seen any cases of alopecia before. And I think his way of comforting me because I had never seen a bald woman on television or in films. And if I had seen them, it was often uh, they were villainous or they were being punished by losing their hair. Um, so, you know, like Natalie Portman and Viva Vendetta or um, Anne, Hathaway, Anne Hathaway and Les Miserables, it was always a punishment. Um, so it was always a bad thing. And I remember this dermatologist trying to make me feel better by saying, oh, you know, there's heaps of celebrities like Sinead O'Connor. <laughs> I was like, she shaves her head. <laughs> uh, so I didn't know anyone with alopecia. I'd never seen anyone with alopecia who looked like me, um, a young, lanky, bald kid living on the Sunshine Coast. Um, and I was very aware of that. But I think as a child, you sort of just soldier on and you have this innate sense of hope that things will get better Um, and I guess in my mind they did over many years of my hair growing back and falling out and growing back and falling out again and now that I'm in as an adult I'm in my late 20s now and I've just sort of come to terms with the fact that this is the norm for me Um, the the fact that I will always have this unpredictable disease Um, and I remember um, when Carly approached me to do this panel and I felt quite conflicted because I I don't identify as having a disability Um, so we talked a bit about appearance diversity and what that meant and I remember having a chat to my brother about it and he was really good mates with Stella Young, uh, the amazing Stella Young and he And she said to him that, you know, having a disability is having some some aspect of your everyday life compromised in a way um, that that makes it difficult for you to to live your everyday life in it simply. And that was something that I really related to um, because it. So I wear a wig now, and I and I do because it just makes everyday life much easier. Um, But I did make a very concerted effort to make sure that in the show that I wrote and uh, acted in, I'm not wearing a wig most of the time. And I did a TED talk um, about alopecia where I'm not wearing a wig in that either. So for me, it's about visibility and um, continuing conversations about that kind of appearance. Thank you. Alistair. Uh, Yeah, I think growing up, you know, there was a gap, certainly. So I was born with uh, titanopathy, which is one of the 
most interesting forms of muscular dystrophy. Um, and there was, over my life, I've sort of not worn leg braces and worn leg braces and then not, and then now I am. Uh, but I think really the only kind of representation that I saw was the first 10 or so minutes of Forrest Gump. And then he like runs so fast and then they explode <laughs> off his body, uh, which I tried so often and it didn't. I think they were just poorly made leg braces. And I think, and then you extend that out and if you, you know, try and include intersecting identities, in my case, gayness, uh, then it's like kind of non-existent. I remember my father tried to get me to read I Can Jump Puddles, the um, <laughs> preeminent polio memoir. Um, <laughs> and it was just so boring. <laughs> I didn't get very far at all. So maybe that is on me um, <laughs> for having like very high standards of wanting, you know, representation that's also interesting. Um, but I think, you know, moving forward, I think there is also maybe a gift in otherness in the sense that because I didn't see myself in screen representation, it kind of causes a fascination with screen content and with you kind of having your brain activated in a different way where you're looking at what is included in screen narratives, what isn't, and in a way maybe that fostering my interest in pursuing it as a career as well as also motivating me to, you know, produce stories which do have characters that are essentially me and then I audition for them as well. <laughs> Just write myself into a project. Um, but yeah. Thank you. Um, I'll just really quickly answer that question for myself. The first time I saw someone like me on TV was maybe when I was about 17 and someone sent me a VHS. No, I think they told me there was a show on and you know, um, you couldn't replay the show once it had been played in the week because it was like in 1998, so no technology. <laughs> so I wrote to Channel 9 and they sent me the VHS Aww. and the show was just hideous and it was called Medical Incredible. And Aww. pretty much since then, the only representations of ichthyosis aside from what I've made myself, <laughs> have been embarrassing bodies, medical incredible, hideous shows like that. So, yeah. mm. um, Thank you, everyone. I want to touch briefly, or ask you to perhaps talk about the work that you're doing to change that representation, if that's okay. Yeah. Whatever order you want. Oh. Uh, it, well, um, I uh, have uh, formed a little indie theatre company called Raspberry Ripple um, because I looked around Melbourne and I saw that there were disabled performers, but that they were led by able-bodied um, people. And we need to be able to tell our own stories, and so... Raspberry Ripple's remit is to tell stories of disabled and non-disabled people living in the world together, sharing the air together. The story about the mother who has a disabled daughter and the fight that she has to get that child educated in the local high school, for example, 
or the story about the the sister who is the only one who can talk her brother down out of an, out of an autistic rage, that sort of thing. I mean, they're stories that we don't tell. And it always surprises me that in an industry which depends on story for its very existence, that these stories are absolutely ignored. People are very uncomfortable with the notion that these stories are out there, and they're out there really commonly, really commonly. Um, it's been my experience running workshops that when I ask the question of the assembled company, what is your experience of disability, everyone has one. Mm. Everyone knows somebody or has somebody in their family or um, talked to somebody or has a friend or whatever. It's actually really common. Mm. Mm. I think a common experience for any group that feels underrepresented is as a viewer and you're being fed these images of what a normal person is and what a normal life is, it, you end up feeling very isolated and extremely lonely. Um, so for me, with my work, I guess the first time I started talking about alopecia was um, I did a women of when Women of Letters was first starting. So I wrote a letter to my hair. So the theme for that month was um, write a letter to your most treasured possession. Uh, so that was sort of like a, a coming out moment for me, if you will. Um, and it, when you have um, the kind of appearance diversity that you can't necessarily see because you, you can hide it with things like hair pieces and wigs, it feels like a constant experience of having to expose yourself. Um, and the reason I wanted to do the TED Talk was because I just wanted... I hated the feeling of feeling as if you have a secret that you need to tell someone in order for them to fully understand you as a person. But then the flip side was that it was so difficult for me to get on with my everyday life when I wasn't wearing a wig. Um, so for me, the TED Talk was a way to just completely take ownership of my own story. And, as, and it was also a way to connect with other people who were going through the same experience because about 4% of the Australian population has some form of alopecia. So that's quite a lot of people. It's hundreds of thousands of people. And yet I'd never seen any kind of representation of it in film or TV or in books or anything like that. So it was really important for me to sort of just reach out and, you know, speak to other people who had the same condition. Um, and then beyond that, with Homecoming Queens, uh, it, that's a web series that I co-wrote and acted in, uh, and it was on, I think it's just come off SBS On Demand, uh, but it was about two friends uh, who are chronically ill, and it examines what it means to be chronically ill when you're a young person in your 20s, and the fact that you are, you know, expected to be quite young and frivolous and carefree, but you're actually inhabiting a body that feels quite old and um, disassociated from everything else you know in terms of what it means to be young and people partying and taking drugs and, and being quite careless, and you can't do that because you have a sick body. Um, so my friend and I... Uh, um, 
they were going through uh, breast cancer and were recovering from that. And we sort of joked about, oh, you know, it'd be nice to one day have a show that represents people like us, haha. And then uh, four years later of development and um, a lot of storyboarding, we had the series. And it was really amazing to have people reach out who didn't necessarily have the same illnesses as us, um, but were able to feel that sense of connection um, to other young people and not in a conventional sense. Um, you've just answered my next question for you, so oh. thank you for <laughs> saving time. Um, Alistair. Uh, I think I've sort of, I do lots of different things like stand-up and improv and screenwriting, but I think my first, sort of the first thing that I did, which I guess addressed disability in a creative way, I... Uh, I was doing a screenwriting degree and I didn't have much money and I, it was during, do you guys remember when Meryl Streep called out Donald Trump for like impersonating that disabled reporter uh, at the Golden Globes? Uh, and I thought it was like, you know, a cool thing for her to do, but also it was, it did strike me as maybe interesting that I mean, the Golden Globes and Hollywood generally is the mecca of disability impersonation, and maybe it was somewhat hypocritical to <laughs> proudly proclaim to a room of people um, like Daniel Day-Lewis or uh, Tom Hanks and stuff like that that, you know, we're punching up. So I pitched a, an article to the to SBS Comedy, a satirical publication, uh, called Disability Impressions Offensive, says Meryl Streep to room of award-winning disability impressionists. Um, and I think that was sort of, that got my head into a space of thinking, you know, there are ways to use comedy and satire to sort of talk about representation and disability in ways that people don't even understand. I think people, the general narrative sort of around that, what Meryl Streep did was, it was a great thing. And I was like, if you, there is space for nuance if you actually listen to a disabled person. Uh, and from that, I sort of have continued kind of trying to use satire to, and not just about disability, but other stuff too. And so now I'm a, a writer for ABC's The Weekly with Charlie Pick Pickering, and that's, you know, a satirical takedown of the news or whatever. And I've been working on other sort of creative projects. I've recently had the great privilege to work with uh, Kate McLennan and Kate McCartney of The Catering Show on a project which I can't discuss yet. I accidentally did on Twitter and then got a stern phone call from them telling me to delete it at once. Um, but talking about uh, disability and using comedy, I think, to make it, you know, interesting enough that abled people might watch it. Thank you. Um, I'm going to skip the next question because, Michelle, no, it's fine. You saved time. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know how to work this. I'm sorry. It's not... Okay. So we talked about that. Um, there's Michelle in Homecoming Queens. Oh, good. <laughs> I get... 
Okay. Sorry, I should have been doing that while you were talking. Um, okay, so Alistair. Yes. So like many millennial creatives, I guess like all of us, even if we're not millennials, um, mm-hmm. you do a huge array of work. Some of your work is public-facing, like comedy and written work and other elements have been behind the scenes, um, like you're writing for The Weekly and Village Roadshow. But how important is the behind-the-scenes representation? Because we always talk about in front of the camera, but what about influencing other things? Yeah, I think this is... I mean, this is something that I really am passionate about. I think certainly in the disability community online, there's a lot of discussion about uh, disabled people on screen being played by disabled actors. Is the casting authentic? And little people are really interrogating, well, is the writing authentic? I mean, it was... I remember someone like tweeting out a picture of the writer's room for Orange is the New Black, and it was like all white people. And it was like an interesting kind of dichotomy that a show that, you know, gets such outward praise for being quite diverse, that diversity is sort of forward-facing, and it does beg the question, who is telling these stories, but also who can make a career out of telling these stories? I mean, I'm interested in you know authenticity behind the scenes but I'm also interested in you know behind the scenes jobs being an economically viable career for disabled people and unless that is addressed with you know making it accessible or through quotas or something like that then you know it can be quite tokenistic you're getting praise for having great diversity on the screen but then if someone applies with a disability and you're not willing to put in the work to make you know your office space accessible then it's only really good PR from the point of view of the show and so I think that's something that I am really passionate about I um I've had you know the great privilege to be in writers rooms making creative decisions with people and then also talking about you know, stuff like casting authenticity. I think also it's important in the sense that uh, someone needs to be in the room to ask the question or to raise the point because if you have a writer's room or producers who all have one singular perspective, whether that's able-bodied or white or straight or male, then, you know, you can get all the way to the day of production having a very problematic script or very, you know, unhealthy working conditions or, you know, maybe you're going to put actors in positions that they're not comfortable doing and then it's only when they rock up that, you know, they can kind of say, well, as the person on screen that is this identity, I I think you should change this and then it's too late to make any kind of big creative changes. So I think... Behind the scenes, it's, to me, I would rather watch, maybe this is controversial, but I would rather watch, you know, a movie written by a disabled person about a disabled character played by an able-bodied person rather than watch a movie written by an able-bodied person even if the casting's authentic. I mean, in an ideal world, it's both, but I think uh, people overlook behind the scenes for the good PR front of diversity. Mm-hmm. Great. 
Thank you. I've got a question for Kate. Um, that you've worked as an actor before you were disabled and how have things changed since acquiring a disability? Are there more opportunities, less? Um, well, um, there, there are less opportunities, um, definitely. Um, but things are kind of changing. I mean, really, my story is that I thought, okay, well, the profession's done with me, the door's shut. So I went off and studied psychotherapy. And in doing that, I worked on myself and realised that actually what I really wanted to do was to come back into my chosen profession. And so I... Um, screwed my courage to the sticking place and went back in there and started advocating and over oh I would say five or six years um, talked to people began writing and performing my, performing my own work at festivals and things and kind of creating a bit of a buzz around it and um, I had connections in the mainstream from when I had worked as a jobbing actor. So in a way, it was a matter of just cranking the door open a little bit and saying, um, sit down and have a conversation with me about it. And that's what I'm still doing, actually. But now things have changed to the point where on Monday, I begin rehearsing a play by the beautiful Emily Colnia called Contest, and I'm working in it as an actor, and it's not a play about disability, which is very exciting to me, because I'm just playing a woman. Mm. It's a, a play about gender and about the different styles of women that are out there and these five women meet and play netball together and one of them happens to be in a wheelchair. So, I mean, it's what I've been saying for ages. A person in a wheelchair can play a mother, a sister, a murderer, a psychopath, a drunk, whatever, you know, we, the, the things that we can play... Um, the number of roles that we can play far outweigh the number of roles that we can't play. And so it's beginning to happen. Mm. It's just beginning to change. And that's exciting to me. And okay. hearing Alistair talk is exciting to me too. Because I, I, I do... I, I personally would love to see um, people working at the Australia Council in the financing section who have a disability. <laughs> That's what I'd like to see. <laughs> then maybe the grant applications I constantly write would get through. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I want to touch on intellectual disability because intellectual disability is often not shown on screen. And I was thinking about Australian representation of intellectual disability. Um, and although The Undateables isn't an Australian show, it's on Netflix and it's been on Australian ABC. Um, and other, like we've had Employable Me recently, um, and there's also been The Dream House, which is quite 
segregating of um, intellectually disabled people. And the, when I thought about it, the last person, um, aside from the um, great Down syndrome episode of You Can't Ask That last year, the last person I thought of with a recurring role where the character was very full, you know, had a really full life, was Tracy Summert, who um, has Down syndrome. And she was on GP in the early 1990s. I, and I couldn't think of another another character that has been represented with with intellectual disability and I know there's great organisations like Bus Stop Films that are doing really great things but I mean we need to get more inclusive of all types of disability. I don't know whether that's a question or a statement but I think we need to... We'll take it as a comment. Okay, we'll take it as a comment. Um, But I mean it's true, it's absolutely true because it's some, you know, intellectual disability, people... People are really scared to confront um, the creative adjustments that they have to make around people with all kinds of disabilities. And intellectual disability, or we say learning disability now, um, is really discomforting for people. So we all have to get comfortable in the discomfort We've got to get comfortable sitting in that space and asking the hard question and making a mistake and being okay with that. That's what I think. And also not having to need a backstory, you know. So, I mean, every time a disabled character appears on TV, yeah. um, there always has to be some sort of backstory about how they got that way or mm. how they um, are coping or overcoming or whatever tragic narrative there is. All right. Tragic narrative is the one. (laughs) (laughs) Anything else on that? Oh, well, I will say I... uh, So last year I did uh, my honours thesis in screenwriting looking at uh, narrative processes and disability representation narrative processes looking at, you know, the fact that when disability is used in narratives, it's often as a metaphor for something or to you know, move the plot along. I mean, you think of, like, Bond villains who are almost always disabled or have some kind of appearance diversity. And I think in my research looking at the Seeing Ourselves study, I did find, you know, an overwhelming predisposition to acquired disability because, I guess, the dramatically interesting thing is this idea of normality disrupted or something like that, where you can kind of look at, you know, someone who walks into Summer Bay, very healthy, and then they're in a boating accident. And then, you know, for almost six weeks, they're going through rehab. Um, (laughs) Until they're normal again. And then they accidentally kiss their half sister. So it's an interesting. <laughs> but I think it does it does sort of speak to this fact that, you know, they what what are people willing to sink their teeth into, and what are producers looking at? And I think it is a very unnuanced thing where, you know, disability when it is represented often is coming from a place of that being the defining characteristic because then it can be used as a dramatically interesting thing rather than a character detail and then their plot is only 
that they kissed their half-sister and has nothing to do with disability. Um, yeah. But, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a really good yeah. point. I think that's a common sort of issue faced by any kind of diversity as well. Remember in sort of the early development stages of Homecoming Queens and the Chloe character is sort of... Um, uh, exploring her sexuality and we we got a lot of questions that were like oh so when does Chloe come out <laughs> and it's like but this isn't a coming out story why does every story about a gay person need to be needs to be them coming out and I remember asking when does Michelle ever come out as a straight person <laughs> and that's sort of dumbfounded people and I'm like why is this a thing <laughs> I think it's um it's actually about um uh, the diversity of humanity being embraced. I don't think that as a species we do that very well. I don't think that we... I think we tell ourselves lies about perfection and about what it is to be a perfect human being and what it's, you know, what would happen to you if you, if you weren't a perfect human being. And so people with disabilities are portrayed as saints or sinners one or the other, but there's no in-between, there's no ordinary life in there. And um, I wait with bated breath for the day when a disabled person is depicted on screen having a normal life, because we do. We have partners and children and, you know, brothers and sisters and parents and friends and we fight with people and we hate people and we love people just the same as everybody but I think that comes down to what Alistair was saying about you know who is in the writers rooms and things like that you know that's why it's important as well because people are so uncomfortable with different types of disabilities or people living with multiple disabilities that there's there's often a sense of pity or they they, their stories are dealt with with fragility and it's like we're all just people and we're all leading complex lives and you know what what is a normal person yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly exactly and normal people are also boring in terms of oh, narrative sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's bus stop films um, there's a there's a um, theatre program a theatre show called you know we belong together and Julia Hales just wants a spot on some in summer bay and so I don't know whether she's going to get one because of this. I hope she does. But that was a really successful play in Western Australia. So that's really important noting that. Um, I think we've kind of touched on this one. So we might skip it. But it's about um, people with facial differences um, being cast as villains. And I had to sit through Star Wars with my husband because, you know... I had to compromise, <laughs> and um, and and the the bad guy was was a villain. But it, it's in everything, and I'm yeah. pretty sick of that. So I guess that's a statement for me. And we have talked about that. So, yeah. do you think we need to discuss it any more than we have? Well, I mean, I'd love to hear more from you if you would want to speak on that. Yeah, I'll just talk about it briefly. I mean, like Wonder Woman, the the um, what was her name? I can't remember what her name the was. Villain. The villain was had a facial difference. There was no backstory about how she got there, but she was evil. Um, and I I've written a lot about this, and I think that that that, that is why 
children are scared of mine and other people with facial differences face because we see this cast. And when I was really little, my parents brought me bought me a um, Snow White and the Wicked Witch um, or Wicked Stepmother or something doll. And the stepmother had a facial difference and I was terrified of it. And it started from a really early age. So when kids are seeing these um, things in movies, these characters in movies, and they just think um, they're evil, then I think that translates into real life. I think it's lazy thinking. I think it's yeah. really lazy thinking. Um, lazy creative thinking from the people who write those stories and make those uh, television serials and things. I just think, you know, come on, kids, get on with it, you know? Um, there's a lot of us out there. Yeah. You know, 20% of the people in all the world live with a disability of one form or another. So differences everywhere and really difference is the thing that we're talking about, not so much disability. I mean, I think that any othering is appalling, but human beings do that to one another relentlessly. Mm. If it's not us, it's refugees or whatever, you know, it's... it's um, there seems to be a part of being human which likes to poke borax at other humans. Mm. It's quite weird. Mm. That ties in nicely with the next question about stereotypes and um, the way people are falsely represented and particularly with invisible illnesses such as mental illness or invisible disabilities rather like mental illnesses. Um, it's often depicted in the evil as an evil character and it perpetuates a really false stereotype. And I, a friend texted me um, yesterday to ask if I could cover this because she said that she just wants to see people with mental illnesses um, portrayed as living with the illness, not so much as um, against it or in a harmful way. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, for me, I, I think that somebody with a mental illness or any invisible disability at all, actually, mm-hmm. would, uh, it, it just strikes me as being really, really hard, really hard, because um, society's expectations are that you're going to get on with it and just fit in. Mm-hmm. And um, not to fit in when you are not obviously physically disabled, it must be really, really difficult. And Michelle, you would know about that. Yeah. I mean, I've had anxiety since I was a very young child. Um, And I sort of touch on anxiety and mental illness in Homecoming Queens as well. Um, My character, who is named after me, so a version of me. Uh, she's sort of dealing with anxiety and panic attacks and sort of living through that while having um, this illness. But I think the trickiness uh, with mental illness and other invisible disabilities is that because it because screen is such a visual medium and those things are invisible, it is quite a challenge to depict them on screen, which isn't to say that it shouldn't be at all. Um, that's just an exciting challenge, I think. Um, but perhaps that's the difficulty that is facing people in terms of representation. And I'd really love to see more of it and, you know, to challenge people to think about representing that creatively. Um, I think a lot of it would come down to the direction of the piece um, and that that would also rely on the director then having quite intimate knowledge or have at least done very comprehensive research into that illness. 
We must come back back to the writers' rooms as well, as Alistair was saying. Yeah, I think definitely, I mean, I, you know, screen is very visual, as Michelle was saying. And I think it's, it's an interesting choice about, like, what if, you know, you have a writer's room which doesn't necessarily have someone with authentic lived experience, then what you're often drawing on if you're not willing to go into comprehensive research is what you've seen in past screen products. That's your primary touchstone. So it's, you know, a self-fulfilling prophecy where if we are seeing, you know, cliched representations of mental illness consistently in screen culture, then you know, people who are inspired by screen culture for their own things will be like, oh, that's how you do this. That's how you represent that. And I think it can be a trap to assume that, you know, the people and the creatives that have come before you have nailed, you know, representing depression or have there's someone who's nailed representing anxiety when really the evolution of, you know, film and television is just that, an evolution and that you should be striving not just to draw on what's come before you, but other sources, authentic voices, true research, and trying to improve it even just a little bit and move the dial just a bit better. Yeah. Mm. And I think about... Sorry, Carly. No, I think you're right there in, in this, you know, creating the stereotype and the cliché, and once someone's seen it on the screen they think if they haven't experienced mental illness or a different type of disability they've seen it all and I know when I think back to shows like Embarrassing Bodies and other things like that um, I I don't condone them at all and I feel like I can speak on it without writing on it because representations like that affect me and affect the whole community because people assume that I bathe like those women on the on the show and I have people telling me that they've seen me on TV and even when I've said yes I've been on Channel 31 or um, ABC they'll say no you were on Embarrassing Bodies and they're adamant that I was the person on there because they've seen it once and they've seen it all. Can I just say they're playing my favourite Guns N' Roses song back there? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry you go. No they know you're here Carly. (laughs) Guns N' Roses are done. Um, I was just speaking, um, expanding on Alice's point uh, about creating a, a broader dialogue. And I think the problem is with when groups are so underrepresented, as soon as there's one representation of it, it's like, that's got to be it. They've got to get it perfect. There's no room to muck up when, in fact, you need you know, dozens and hundreds of examples to give people the freedom to explore creatively and to make mistakes, like a lot of subpar television and film that's out there. Yeah. <laughs> um, they get a lot of leeway, whereas when you come from a minority, it's like you get one chance <laughs> and that's yeah. it because there's so little funding that they're willing to give you a little trickle, a little taste, yeah. and that's it. <laughs> Which is why we need um, disabled writers in writing rooms and we need disabled people all the way across the performing arts and in, in the screen, in television particularly, um, because that's how we're going to get authenticity actually happening. Yeah. You know, we need to actually be familiar with one another and we need to be sitting in the same rooms as one another. Whoever's watching, hire us, please. Yeah. And for it not to be a 
kind of a special thing, you know? Yeah. We're just people. Yeah. Come on, kids. And funding bodies especially, I think, uh, you know, people in who are commissioning stuff, who are willing to have a failure of a show about disability before they write it off uh, for a decade. I think that's good too. Because, yeah, there's so much mediocre television. Yeah. I'd love to make some mediocre television. Mm. <laughs> that shouldn't reflect on the whole community. That's just my personal goal. Um, I don't know, like, spe Speechless, the show, I think we've got a photo coming up, but it was on... Um ABC America and then it was on Channel 10 here and then it got shifted to 9 o'clock on a Friday night and then it got shifted to Channel 11 you know like at 11 o'clock on a Saturday night or something and so it was never seen mm. and I, I did an article on it for the Sydney Morning Herald and the um, entertainment writer, editor rather he commented on just how much it's being shifted and no one's going to see it by the time the article <laughs> came out so we're not given a chance to start with you know when we're not shown at prime time unless it's an awful show on a current affair or something we're not you know we're not given a chance so we have to be because we don't we don't drive it mm. you know it's non-disabled people who are making mm. decisions about all of that kind of stuff and so um our voices are not being heard because our vo our voices are not kind of driving the programming forward yeah and we need to be doing that yeah um I'm going to just, sorry, quote myself here because <laughs> I, that's a line from my book and I've only been doing my book for the last six months. Um, I want to talk about The Greatest Showman and everyone loved The Greatest Showman and I went to see it with my mum and look, it was all right and then I Googled it. Um, but um, one of the things that happened when I was in The Greatest Showman was that there was a woman in front of me or maybe she was a teenager, I'm not sure. I saw it in my hometown of Albury, which is quite not diverse and hence why I left and um uh, anyway I there was the woman in front of me kept on laughing and gasping when the bearded lady came on and all I thought was when the lights go on and she turns around what's she going to say about my face not that I'm the bearded lady but if she can't handle someone on screen how can she handle someone in the theatre with her that has a facial difference so but everyone I've spoken to has just loved this film and then even when my article's been shared and I, I don't particularly just share the link after they've said on Facebook oh my god this film's amazing but other people have done that and they won't read it they'll just defend it like it's amazing and so I mean the premise of it was he was a, a freak show master and in the film, they formed a, like the people within the freak show or the travelling circus um, formed a real sense of family, which was lovely to see. And I think there was some empowerment. But the fact the film was made in 2017 with only one disabled character actor playing a disabled character, the rest were all, as we call it, cripping up. Um, even in the IMDb um, notes, the um, the people that were playing the um, the uh, people with albinism were noted as oddities. They weren't even named with their name. And for me, I mean, people with my skin condition were in freak shows until, I mean, they might still even be in some countries, but until the 1960s in America, people with ichthyosis were in freak shows. So, uh, you know, as I said, were, were you even watching? What do you think of that? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Oh, I mean, I haven't seen the film I, because I just... 
I, I feel like it will make me so angry that I, I just don't want to do that to myself. Um, I'm really tired of, um, of, of seeing this stuff happen. I mean, you know, this fantasy that the greatest showman was actually a really nice guy and he was doing all of these, um, these uh, disabled people a huge favour by employing them. And it's a, it's a really tarnished story for me. I don't think that it, it really describes what would have gone on. It would be much more interesting from my point of view to do the research on one character who, you know, was a part of his, his coterie of disabled people and to actually find out what their story really is. Mm-hmm. That would be much more interesting to me than, than seeing, you know, Hugh Jackman play a really nice guy who was, you know, benevolent and fabulous to all of these poor people that we should all feel pity for. Yeah, the able saviour complex. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm sick of seeing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I find it boring. Mm. But the song was really great. <laughs> <laughs> I, I haven't seen it, so I don't even know the song. I think the also, I think the existence of freak shows and then you know screen content about freak shows does speak to like the dichotomy between representation for disabled people, which is you know massive pendulum swings from invisibility to hyper visibility, and mm-hmm. both are a form of dehumanisation. I the experience of disability representation isn't purely one of there's not enough. It's also one of it's the core focus of someone's being, in which case, you know, you're seeing that rather than the full roundedness of that person. And I think, you know, it does, again, speak to, like, narrative processes and stuff like that. But certainly with, I mean... It just feels like a missed opportunity that this period piece would revisit a time when, you know, people were only seen for their physical oddities and they wouldn't make any efforts to, you know, subvert that. They, in fact, kind of just replicated that, but now it's available on (laughs) Blu-ray. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, you're so right there. Um... We've got two more questions. We're on time and I'm feeling good. Um, So I want to talk really briefly on access to the screen because there's been some really um, important articles recently around um, access and how while we have captions for... um, for people to follow along on the screen, people that can't hear or that don't consume media in that way. Um, There's been a really big push from the blind community to get shows audio described. And I was reading about captions that they're available for um, 18 hours a day Mm. on free-to-air TV. And I think that all digital TV... um, uh, what are they called, like set-top boxes or something, have to have the option as well, have to have that function. Um, but audio descriptions aren't provided. So audio descriptions describe um, to a blind person or um, a person that doesn't consume media in that through visually what's happening on screen. 
So there's also barriers to access in terms of um, perhaps a person with a um, speech impediment might not be cast or invited on a show because of that. So there's all kinds of communication barriers. And how do we break these down? So there's the consumption and the um, placement within. I have like a Shark Tank pitch um, <laughs> where, because I studied screenwriting, I did a Bachelor of Screenwriting and I, was, I saw that they had episodes of uh, Luther on ABC iview and I, uh, I noticed that they had the option for an audio described version of Luther and I was like, because I was studying, like, how do you, through words, describe, you know, visuals, which is what writing for the screen is. You know, you're at a desk trying to take something from out of your mind's eye into text form. And so I listened to this episode of Luther, you know, uh, and didn't watch it, but audio described, and it taught me so much about the process of screenwriting. So my pitch is that we uh, get uh, screenwriting students to uh, write audio descriptions uh, in order to better their own craft skills as well as the public service of actually making uh, screen content accessible. Patent pending. <laughs> so I follow Naomi Simpson on LinkedIn. I'll send this to her after the show. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> I need a break. Uh. <laughs> I think that's a fantastic yeah. idea. Amazing. I really think it's a. I really do think that's a fantastic idea, because it's about the um, the space in between what people see and what they hear, and describing it in a fashion which drives the plot forward, and what do you choose to describe. That's a really interesting conversation that I'm having with a few people at the moment. Mm. Name your price. Make a, I'll take a bid. <laughs> yeah, we can all... I mean, I'll, I'm the CEO, but... <laughs> yeah, let's, you know, 2.5%. What do you want? Um, but no, I think, yeah, it's... It, definitely, I think... I mean, that's, maybe that's coming across as a joke answer, but the serious issue is that, I mean, if screen content isn't fully accessible to disabled people, to all disabled people, then that also plays into the fact that there is poor statistics in behind-the-scenes roles because you can't be what you can't see or hear or anything else. And, you know, I'm only the... TV writer that I am today because I've watched a lot of TV and if I couldn't I wouldn't be a TV writer so it's I mean one of the ways that to address you know poor behind the scene statistics for disability is to make sure that all the you know film and TV that would inspire people to pursue that is accessible to everyone Great. anything else before our last question um, here's some bad representations. Then we're going to talk about the good representations. So what are some celebrations of disability and appearance diversity on screen to wrap up our conversation? <laughs> what about your... I'm a big fan of Michelle's show. <laughs> your appearance on the weekly the other day. 
What? <laughs> Weren't you like... Oh, yeah, I was... <laughs> the top of my... I was at my desk and they were filming uh, something for Kitty Flanagan in the office. So you can see um, just... Uh, <laughs> sort of just my dandruff uh, <laughs> was in shot and that was a big moment for me personally. I think it's a big moment for Scaly Scalps though because as someone with a Scaly Scalp, <laughs> I mean we're always depicted as just tragic. So thank you. <laughs> Not at <laughs> thank all. You, <laughs> but I think the fact that we're sort of struggling to think of examples is a huge problem. Oh, yeah. Okay, I can think of one. I can think of one. <laughs> Chris Van Ingen in Barracuda on the ABC oh. last year. He is a, um, uh, you know, genuinely disabled actor and he did a great job mm. in that show, I thought. What about when Toadie was disabled on Neighbours? <laughs> <laughs> kidding, kidding. <laughs> but, you know, it was just the overcoming thing. Given we can't think of many. I think, yeah. I mean, I'm probably biased, but yeah. I think You Can't Ask That did quite a good job, even though it wasn't disability-led. Um, my experience in the show was excellent and I felt very much in control and now I am more asked, am I on car- You Can't Ask That than am I sunburnt? So that's good. <laughs> I think that show evolved, yeah. actually. Yeah, I think too. it really did. Um, and I think that was... I like to think that that's largely because um, the executive producer of that show came to the Accessible Arts Conference in Sydney a couple of years ago and was absolutely, you know, blown away by hearing people talk. Mm. Mm. I think so. I like to think so. We did have a celebration, a picture here. Um, from A Quiet Place and there's a great quote from someone here Um, it was I think the quote was on a tweet she's neither an afterthought nor is she an inspiration which is another trap films involving disability fall into she's a person she's also the best thing about a film that is full about full of good things Mm. so I think that's a nice yeah I love that movie I have there's a lot of flaws in that movie though (laughs) and one of them is that this is a spoiler for anyone who hasn't seen it but these (laughs) sorry this is just a bit of a rant but why would you have photo frames hanging on rickety nails Mm. in a house that attracts monsters (laughs) (laughs) answer that John Krasinski Can you think of any other ones? Any other celebrations? Any other questions for John Krasinski? <laughs> no. Uh, I also... Uh, why will shout out the feature film Pulse by uh, Daniel Monks, writing and performing. I think was a big one for me, like a young, queer, disabled boy. I think what I found interesting about that, the kind of plot of that it's like a soft sci-fi where he's this teenage boy uh, in high school secretly in love with his male best friend Uh, and there's this new uh, therapy where you can uh, transplant your brain into the body of an abled person um, and then he transplants his brain into the uh, body of a able-bodied teenage girl uh, in order to explore 
uh, gender and sexuality. Uh, but I, what I thought was interesting about that is that it does kind of play, it does subvert the cure narrative with disability because in a sense the primary antagonistic force isn't the disability in that film, it is the cure. What is the problem that these cures are causing and, you know, does someone necessarily have that cure or do they go back to the their authentic self? And it was interrogating questions of, you know, what what is your body and if you cure yourself, what elements of your identity are you changing? That, I think, and also because it is both written and starring by, you know, an actual disabled person. Shout out. Great. Thank you. Um, here is a guy from Speechless, the show that I talked about. Um, I can't remember his name, but he is actually disabled, which is great. And Mika they've also... Fowler, I think. Yeah, M- Mika Fowler. Micah, Micah, Mika. Um, and he... And, and RJ Missy, who is a writer on Speechless, I think, now as well. Um, now we're going to have Q&A. So thank you, everyone, for that amazing discussion. Thank you. Um, so we've got Anna, who has been great to work with. Thank you so much, Anna, for having us. Um, coming up with some questions that have been pre-written. Sure. Great. Cool. If you have any more, I guess just put your hand up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, first question: uh, How do you get visually impaired uh, persons represented in media when travelling and using a guide dog is seen as an issue to employers and producers? Mm-hmm. Sorry, can you? So, is the question about getting them in sort of behind-the-scenes roles, or? Yeah, I think the question of you know, accessibility maybe costs money or people aren't willing to uh, make those accessibility... I think the person that wrote the question is going to say something. I'm not sure if there's a microphone. I just um, applied for a tourism Wow, that's not very inclusive at all, it seems. Mm. And I think, like in all workplaces, um, it's really important to have accessibility to follow the Disability Discrimination Act and make these accommodations and and reasonable adjustment. Um, It has to be said, you know, Mm. people really need to be educated. Wow. You're kidding. Wow. And so oh, there, there is an example of ableism right yeah. there, mm. uh, you know, from a disabled person. That's, yeah. that's incredible to yeah. me. Yeah. But that is the world in which we live. Mm. And their budget probably wouldn't have stretched that far. Mm. So, you know. But they need to budget for these things. I mean, mm. on they a side to. note, 
you know, like so many of us are told that we're supposed to work for free. And so that's a case of them not budgeting for that mm. accommodation. Yep. Mm. yep. Mm. And I also feel that there should be an onus on screen funding bodies to properly have subsidy funds for yeah. accessibility. I mean, yeah. Australia's industry is only exists through subsidies where <laughs> not the most profitable screen industry in the world but I think there's <laughs> definitely yeah get in get in shot um, but I think definitely you know there the government and government funding bodies can be doing more because you know when you have these questions of budget allowances uh, you know disabled people are the first people to get cut and if there were specific funds for accessibility then there wouldn't be this weird cost benefit analysis where you're deciding do you actually include disabled people or do you go a day without catering that shouldn't be a Sophie's choice that has to be made mm. I think absolutely yeah I agree yeah. thank you shall I Next do we all want to do a oh, yeah let's all do a question Okay, how do you define the difference between inspiration porn and having characters with disabilities represented living ordinary lives? So do you want me to talk what inspiration porn is first for people that don't know or might not know? Okay, so the amazing Stella Young coined a term inspiration porn, which means the objectification of disabled people for the benefit of non-disabled people. So um, it's it's like the greatest showman when everyone just thinks, oh my gosh, how amazing are they? Or if they can do that and they're disabled, then my life's not so bad. And you probably see a lot of that stuff on social media. Go and Google Stella Young's TED Talk after this show. Mm. I mean, after this event. <laughs> Sorry, we're not a TV show yet, but we will be soon. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, yeah, how, how do you make a differentiation between that? Well, I think um, for me it comes back to uh, telling stories about disabled and non-disabled people living in the world together. It's it, telling ordinary heroic stories about people just getting on with their lives. It's not about making a trope about disabled people being either evil or saints. Mm. It's not about that. Mm. I think it's also at a storytelling level, whenever you see disability in film and TV, it's always them existing despite their dis disability. Mm -hmm. And it's such a core part of their lives and their story, when of course it is a part of your everyday life, but at the same time, you're just living as ordinarily as anyone else. Yep. Um, so I think it's the foregrounding of people's stories that aren't necessarily about their disability, it's about their relationships or it's about their work life or it's about you know other stresses that they're faced by. And the more that we see that kind of representation, the more it's quite normalised on screens mm. and there isn't this sense of otherness or exoticism. Mm. And I think 
your show, Homecoming Queens, it could have been really tragic with the storyline of cancer, but it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I think people were really shocked when we would pitch the show to them and say, you know, it's a, it's a story about chronic illness and dealing with chronic illness in your 20s, but it's a comedy. Um, <laughs> one of them doesn't have hair and the other one had cancer, but that's fine. <laughs> um, and people were always really surprised that we pitched it as a comedy. And I think that's because when you're dealing with difficult things and you commiserate with other people who are dealing with similarly difficult things, often you do just laugh about it mm. because it is inherently quite absurd, yep. the lives that anyone is living. <laughs> like, so it just made sense for me. And I think as a writer generally with stories that are quite dark, I tend to lighten them just naturally because... Um, that's just always been my instinct because I don't think that stories are inherently dark. There's always there's light and shade to everything. Do you have anything on that? Uh, yeah, well, I, I think I come from a similar mindset of using comedy as a thing. But I think also, I think one of the ways to maybe avoid inspiration porn is that if you have more than one disabled person in a show then you're actually showing like a diversity of experiences within this one thing I think it can be a trap uh, that a lot of shows fall into where they'll have you know one character from each minority group uh, (laughs) just really checking those boxes but in a way that means that that person kind of has to stand in for a whole community in which sense I mean what do you do do you give them an uplifting narrative or alternately are you reinforcing another cliche which is that they're an object of pure tragedy and I think there's space for nuance if you know you've got you know, a bunch of disabled people in something or a bunch of any kind of minority group, then you can make, you know, a point that, you know, one person isn't standing in for this whole sort of thing. Mm. Yeah, you're right. I have to give a little plug. I got a producer's note. Um, The next session, the next conversation here is next week, Empathy Machines. It will also look at mental illness depiction on screen. So if you're interested in carrying on that conversation, come along next week. Mm. Okay, you've you've talked about getting people with disabilities uh, in creative... Sorry, I'm terrible reading people's handwriting. In creative roles like actors, writers and directors, but what about technical roles? Have you worked with many... Have you worked with... Maybe you should read... Can you read that word? Many. Oh, many. Many? I think many. Differently abled people on camera, audio, etc. And how do we encourage that? Um, I did... No Limits, which was a show on Channel 31. I think it went from for about 10, maybe longer. I think it went for 10 or so years. Um, and I did it for four seasons or three and a half seasons. And everyone involved in that show had a disability of some sort. And it was run by, um, it was at, at RMIT Studio. And 
a lot of the people involved were behind the scenes. So working the auto queue, you know, some of the presenters, I wasn't very good at auto queue. I did it once and then I was sacked from that job. Um, but, you know, a lot of us were, were behind the scenes. So I think that the community radio kind of roles and the community TV roles can really help in that because I saw a, a lot of different people um, doing that in producer, director, technical roles. I think it's about the creation of a pathway. I think that it's about um, uh, people in the industry changing their mind about it and saying, yes, we actively have to seek these um, people out for technical roles and um, getting some positive discrimination happening. That's what I think. Some quotas. I'm a great fan of quotas. Mm. Let's yeah. see them. Mm. Okay. Did you prefer to... <laughs> Do you prefer to use disabled person or person with a disability and why? Oh, um... Personally, I prefer disabled person just because it's not so much of a mouthful. Um, and I really hate all the, um, the ableist kind of um, language around disability. It drives me nuts. Um, person with a disability, handicapped, um, differently abled, one of my pet hates. Um, I, I don't know. Just I've never found a word that's better than disabled, so I'm a disabled person. And really, I call myself a crip to my friends. So I, that doesn't mean that you can call me a crip, <laughs> but I call me a crip, you know. So, um, yeah. I, I, and I think that, that actually language is a really important thing. I think that language needs to be generated by disabled people. The language about disabled need, people needs to be generated by disabled people. That's what I reckon. Uh, I call myself a disabled person because of the social model of disability. The social model means that we are disabled by um, society, that it's about barriers rather than our bodies that are disabling. And disability is part of my identity, just like gender, lack of religion, race, um, colour, all of that. And um, I, I've been doing um, image descriptions on my social media posts for people that can't see the um, photo or that um, consume the media in a different way. And if I describe myself as a red woman, people get really angry and they really, they really police the way we see ourselves and we, the way we describe ourselves. And when, when we call ourselves disabled people instead of people with disability or if I say I'm a red person, which is a fact, both of those things are a fact, um, there's a lot of policing from non-disabled people around yeah, it's that. Like we're, we're breaking their rules yeah. or something. Um, and we're, we're very naughty to be doing that. Yeah. It's, it's an odd thing. What about you? Uh, I'm a fan of like all those like old school like Agatha Christie words <laughs> like lame or invalid. I think those are fun. <laughs> I think I personally, I'll go with disabled person. I think the, I mean, I'm in a similar boat with both you. Like I, you know, accept the social model of uh, disability, but also the fact that person with a disability to me feels like a symptom of people being uncomfortable about talking with disability. So I'm all for the head-on confrontation approach, but also it's a personal thing. So, mm. I mean, I guess just use one or the other until uh, the person in question tells you which they prefer. 
uh, and then use that in regards to them. What about you? I don't know. It's something that I'm sort of still grappling with, I suppose. Um, yeah, it, I guess through our sort of email exchanges of, yeah, I never really identified as being appearance diverse or I hadn't heard of the term before. So it's something that I'm still sort of looking into and figuring out for myself. Sorry if I just labelled you like that. <laughs> but I really How dare you, Carly? After yeah. Homecoming Queens, because it was so exciting yeah. to see someone with a bald head on TV. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. and I totally understand that. It's something that you don't ever see on TV, or especially Australian TV. Except for old men. Except for old men. Um, and even then, it's seen as, like, it can be quite a sexy thing. I don't know. <laughs> Some people are into it. Um, it's... Especially for women, you know, it's seen as a loss of your femininity and a loss of your identity. Mm-hmm. And a lot of um, people who have cancer talk about one of the most uh, traumatising things for women is losing their hair when they go through chemotherapy. And it is quite an identity shifting experience that Mm. takes a very long time to come to terms with and is an ongoing sort of battle. Mm. Is that it? I think we're on time. It's amazing. There are more questions. Oh, Oh, there's another one. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry to preempt the end. Oh, okay. Sweet. Ben Affleck plays the role of someone with high-functioning autism in The Accountant. I haven't seen that movie. In the role, Affleck functions on a level beyond that of the academically and athletically elite, but socially he has the inability to connect with people even though he wants to. That's the quote from the film, he wants to. If you have seen the film, what are your thoughts on how mental illness... uh, uh, Mental illness... Something are represented. Conditions. Conditions are represented. I haven't seen I the haven't movie. Seen I it. haven't seen it, I but I've seen, seen a lot of tweets about it. Sorry. Sorry, Ben Affleck. Sorry. <laughs> um. I in the role. Has anyone else seen it in the room? What about the person that wrote the question? <laughs> what do you think? You don't have to make yourself known if you don't want the attention. It's all right. We love attention, but you don't have to if you don't want to. But thank you for that question. I'm going to go home and do some homework. Yeah. Is that... I, uh, no? I saw... I was in Hong Kong last month, and I, my family and I wanted to see something of the Hong Kong cinema scene. So we went to see a film, um, and it was quite lauded because uh, a very famous Hong Kong film actress won what is essentially a Hong Kong Academy Award for this role. And she plays the mother of um, her son has autism. And it's quite a strange film genre-wise. It sort of bends between crime and drama and melodrama. Anyway, long story short, uh, I came out of the film feeling quite unsettled because I didn't know if the actor had autism or not. And then later, when I was doing a workshop with someone who was a director from Hong Kong, he had worked with that actor before in his theatre, and I asked if he had autism, and he said, he just sort of laughed in my face and said, of course not. Um, So I find it very problematic, and even just coming out of the film, I felt really uncomfortable. Um, So I think if I saw The Accountant, I would have a very similar reaction. Mm. I know that um, I recently saw the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime, um, which was a UK production which the Melbourne Theatre Company brought out here. And um, the 
lead actor was not, not autistic, but it was a representation of autism. And the direction of the film actually immediately excluded people with autism from coming to watch the play because it started off with strobe lighting and really loud noises. Mm. So that's it. We're gone. So it was a play for non-autistic people about autism. Mm. So that doesn't work for me. Mm. I think in a lot of cases of underrepresented people, whether it is disability or race or sexuality or what have you, it's often to make the people who are making that film feel better about themselves, (laughs) Um, which I'm not about. And uh, I guess through my work, I'm trying to actively dismantle. Um, And I think there needs to be sort of more of that advocating for uh, authentic storytelling and getting the right people in the room. I mean, I understand that it's a difficult thing and there isn't that much money in the industry, but... You know, Screen Australia is making steps and they released that diversity report, which was great, but also quite unsurprising in its really disappointing statistics. Um, I think, though, there's a a lot of... It's a lot of hot air that gets sort of bandied about and the fact that people think that because we've acknowledged it, oh, what a step forward, but then nothing actually happens. Yeah, Yeah. so I think there have got to be people um, in the industry and in other industries as well, in any sort of workplace, who are actively advocating and doing the hard hard yards. But it doesn't always have to be those of us from the minority groups either because that's quite tiring. Mm. It's it's exhausting for us, absolutely. Mm. So allies step up. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Great. I think we're finished. Are we finished? You're finished. Thank thank you. A huge thank you to our audience for coming tonight and our panel and an extra large thank you to Carly for bringing it together and our interpreters. Conversations podcast. Visit acme.net.au for information about upcoming events, exhibitions, and film screenings.